Chris Judd is doing it the hard way. After almost 30 years of playing a team sport, he has struck out on his own to take on the financial markets. After a stint on the Carlton board, the Premiership winning captain, two-time Brownlow medalist, Hall of Famer, has turned his hand to full-time investing. Sitting in a room, reading and thinking about where to allocate his capital is about as distant from a full house at the MCG on a Saturday afternoon in September as you are going to get. With four young kids to kill the downtime, Chris also finds time to run his own media group, Chris Judd Invest. The online media group is headlined by the excellent podcast, Masters of the Market and Talk Your Book, where he comfortably chats with some of Australia's leading financial minds. Despite being a late starter to the financial game, he is far from out of his depth. Meanwhile, Chris invests his own capital with a keen eye on macro events. He is particularly interested in the current craze of money printing being carried out by central banks around the globe. No doubt our discussion will cover topics associated with money printing such as inflation, gold, and maybe cryptocurrencies. Trying to wrap your arms around macroeconomic trends is slightly different to shaking off a Brett Kirk tag. It would be interesting to know which one is the more difficult. Welcome, Chris, to Success and More Interesting Stuff. Thank you, Matthew. That's a, uh, that's a, a lovely introduction. Great to be here. It's interesting in the sense that maybe this is a nice peaceful break from the Carlton board. That's right. Yeah, I had uh, I had four years on the Carlton board, so um, look, enjoyed that. But but as you touched on, with four kids and trying to to run a business and earn some money, you you, you can't kiss all the girls, as they say. So it was a good time to exit and, and focus on the investing and, and other endeavours. Well, I tip my hat because you go for three kids and you end up with four can be quite quite uh, stressful and quite demanding. So hopefully, having twins is going okay at the moment. It's going well, yeah. We're lucky to have four healthy kids that have made it through a couple of years of homeschooling, you know, with their physical and mental health intact. So it's been a huge couple of years for everyone all across the world. But um, kids are back at school and, yeah, plenty to look forward to over summer. Yeah, kids are pretty resilient. Let's go back in time and work out your DNA because you spent a long time playing football and sport as the dominant feature before you eventually found the financial markets and where you sit today and obviously love. So tapping into that family background where you're sitting around the breakfast table or the dinner table at home in Melbourne. What was the discussion like? Was there anyone interested in business? Was there anyone talking about the share market or was it football, athletics, round the clock, wall to wall? There was very little interest in business in the house or money for that matter. My my mum was a a nurse who who then turned uh, into becoming a clinical psychologist at the age of about 40. So she she had a decade worth of study and, and then started a new career a bit later on in life. And my dad was an IT consultant, but limited interest in shares or investing or property. My grandfather liked his investing, you know, I think bought News Corp at, at 30 cents. You know, I don't know how many he bought, but his favourite pastime was to, to sit on a rock at Noosa and, and have the newspaper out and check what his News Corp, News Corp shares are doing. And would he ever speak to you about that? No, he passed away when I was about 16. I reckon I bought my first shares not long after that. You know, after walking down to the newsagents with the old man and buying a shares magazine and reading one of the recommendations, you just wouldn't dream of investing like that now. But yeah, that, that was my introduction to it. I reckon that was just after he passed. That might have been inspired by him. But yeah, certainly business wasn't wasn't at the forefront of, of any of any family discussions in the house I grew up in. So maybe the the market interest skipped a generation. Maybe I, I don't know what it was, but it's certainly something I've taken to, particularly the macro side of investing. I, I know we'll get onto it later, but. You know, that idea of, of stories and macro investing really is the story of what's going on in the world. And, and to be able to discover that post footy just felt, felt magical, really. And just, just felt like so many things opened up and, and all of a sudden made a lot more sense, even things that were seemingly unrelated to, to finance. So that, that ability to be able to explain what's happening in the world, often through a financial lens, is, has been a, a, a terrific thing for me to be able to discover. Well, it's a great effort to do it because I know you're investing your own money and to do it yourself. I I did that for a while and it's a lonely venture. Uh, It can be rewarding, but anything by yourself is hard. Let's just go back. And obviously you played football from a very young age. You were also a good athlete and got to state level, I think, and might've done well at that level as well. As a young guy, obviously a good athlete, but competitive? You're super competitive, but not competitive at everything. Like I know some people who are if you play a game of marbles, they're wildly competitive on it. I'm really able to switch on and off. So it's something that's important to me, wildly competitive. But if something's 
I deem not relevant or, or not particularly close to my heart. I'm not too fussed about, about losing. But, yeah, certainly for things that, that I value and I feel are important, deeply competitive. And most competitions is evolved into beating someone else or sometimes beating yourself. So when we transpose to your competitiveness as a kid in sport and we take it to markets, does that competition come out and is it about being the market, beating yourself, doing better? Yeah, it's about beating the market. So beating the index, you know, measure performance from 2014 to now. So there's a really clear scoreboard and I'm very much the belief the scoreboard doesn't lie. So I don't <laughs> care about these people that say oh, I was right, but the, the, the market was wrong or whatever. Like the scoreboard's the scoreboard. And so I've got clear goals around that and I'm clear about the type of investor I am. So I, I know or believe that over an extended period, say three years or longer, I can outperform the index, but I know that I can't outperform the index each month. And, you know, fund managers need to do that or need to not underperform by a lot because they get redemptions. But as a private investor, I don't have that concern. So I'm sort of clear about, you know, where my different edges lie as an individual investor versus an institutional investor and the competitiveness is, yeah, I mean, that's what investing is. I make, I, you, you make you taking position and basically saying that the market's wrong and that they'll agree with you later on. And, you know, when that works, it's it's satisfying, A, because you made some money, but B, because you were right. That's why we do what we do. And do you think it's a key ingredient for anyone out there listening? If you're going to do well in the market, do you have to have that competitive instinct just like you do in sport? Not necessarily. I mean, I think it depends what type of investor you are. I mean, you can invest in index funds and perform well, and it's a safe sort of thing that will steadily accumulate. But I think if you want to be an individual stock picker, you know, each time you're buying a stock, someone's selling it to you. And you need to have confidence you've done more work on it or understand the business better than the person selling it to you. So there's that element of competitiveness that comes from that. So certainly I think competitiveness to, to aggressive or individual stock pickers is, is an important facet. Another important factor is judgment and making decisions. So if we go back to when you're young, you obviously were a good athlete, good middle distance runner, and you're a, a footballer and that was shown out over time. So why would you choose and make that decision to go to football? I almost feel like I didn't choose. I just loved it so much. And it sounds a bit soppy to say football chose me, but there, there was never a choice. It was just, you know, an obsession from, from an early age. I, every now and then I'll have a parent talk to me about their kid who's thinking about taking up a professional sport in, in tennis or, you know, they're just not sure if they want to do it. And I'm not usually as crude as this when I speak to them, but if you're having those thoughts, it's probably not for you. People that pursue a career in professional sport, a career where the statistics will say you're ridiculous to follow, much like the statistics will say, you know, you can't outperform the market as an individual investor. You know, if you're analysing that through your head instead of your heart, I, I don't think there'd be many athletes that, 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 uh, that made it. And juggling time, as you're doing now with kids and family and podcasts and investing, it's a bit the same when you're at school. For a guy who was obviously a very good young footballer and a lot of demands to achieve at that level once you get the back end of school, you still perform well at school itself. Were you competitive in that sense and what subjects were you good at? And has that helped you as you've moved into financial markets later in your life? Yeah, I was a, a lazy student up until really up until year 12, where I just matured enough to realise that I'm going to be here anyway for the next 12 months. I might as well actually do some work. And I also did a subject less than everyone else, which I think was really useful. So I did four subjects in year 12 instead of five. Well, we would call that doing three units. These days, they call them extensions. I don't know what it's like in Victoria. So what, what you did extension subjects that you were good at? In Victoria, what, what people do is you get your four best subjects goes towards your score, and then you get 10% of your, your next two subjects. So most people do five or six. I did four. Well, I did one in year 11, and then I did four in year 12. I did English PE, the easy maths. I did history. I did literature. So English-based, you know, again, probably unsurprising. I like macro investing and the stories as opposed to a bottom-up approach. Yeah, liked English, like words, uh, like reading as a kid. And I think a lot of younger people get overwhelmed about how much maths you need in financial markets. And I heard you quoted recently saying it was a little bit about maths. It was yeah, being I mean, successful. I think, I think it's much more about psychology. And your mum must come in handy there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm investing. Anytime an investment, I sort of will talk to my parents about they manage their own super now. So I assist them with that that process. <laughs> Anytime an investment goes up, my mum wants to sell it straight away. So she's learning the difference between 
mean reversion and exponential growth, but it's been a slow process. But um, yeah, so I mean, she, I was, she's not the in-house counsellor. She's the nervous one in the house. Well, in terms of investing, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? You can borrow someone's tip, but you can't borrow their conviction. So it's always hard if you haven't done the work yourself. And before we clock off on your family in those young days, a- any siblings? Yeah, I've got an older sister who's three years older. Yeah. And was she also a good sports person, competitive, or just a different creature altogether? She was a magnificent athlete, but not competitive at all and stopped doing any sport when she was about 13 or 14. She was a brilliant track runner, really good netballer for whatever reason. Yeah, just just the competitiveness didn't didn't gel with her. So um, she stopped playing pretty young. But, uh, you know, she's She's great. She's got two kids. She's married, working hard. So yeah, we're very lucky to have a you know a really close family where where everyone's fit and healthy. So let's track forward. You go over to Perth. You leave Melbourne. You go over to Perth. You hit the football scene very early and very hard. You're in grand finals quickly. Obviously, it was a terrific time in your in your career. I'm just trying to think what what you were thinking about in those days and how you managed yourself. So when for example, when you stood up on the podium with the Premiership Cup, I think it was with Ben Cousins in 2006, were you looking out into the crowd thinking, do these people know there's a housing bubble forming in the US? <laughs> <laughs> or was no, you know, always somewhere else then and you were totally focused on football and, and you could only really focus on the one thing to succeed at it? Yeah, well, I was obsessively focused on football and was investing and was a ridiculously stupid investor at that phase. So I got margin call during the GFC when I was overseas just got smashed and I've never loaned money for a share since so maybe I should have been thinking about the housing bubble a little bit more instead of the the premiership success but um yeah look I think there were some great lessons in that period of my life that you know translate really well to investing that I probably didn't realize at the time you know I, I look at that west coast team that was able to have some success because they did things differently to the dominant teams of that time so Brisbane Lions were a really muscle bound heavy team that were one of the great teams of the last hundred years. And they did that by being physically bigger and stronger than, than opposing teams. And, and what the other teams coming up usually tried to do was to put on a heap of muscle so they could compete against the huge beasts that, that the Brisbane Lions team had. And I remember talking through this to, to Ben Cousins and Ben just saying, no, there's no point putting on muscle to, to try and out-muscle them. We just need to outrun them. Mm. And there was a real focus in that team being lean and being elite runners, which which West Coast were at the time. And in the end, that's how teams disrupt or, or overcome the dominant team that's the predecessor. It isn't by doing the same thing better. It's usually by creating a different operating system like what Apple did with Microsoft and, and what you see in the business world all the time. And that happens with sport all the time, the outliers are outliers because they do something different and they're the teams that perform the best, but also the teams at the other end of the spectrum are doing something different and it's not working. And then in between, you have those teams that are following best practice, but invariably the ones that really become the best teams or the great teams are, are outliers because they're doing something different. They're non-consensus, if you'd say, if you're an investor. And it sounds like th- that conversation that you had, and I'm sure it was going through the football club in general, was playing to your strengths, which is a bit the same as what you were saying earlier about the share market. Yeah, that's right. And really understanding, you know, when the culture of a group marries up to the competitive advantage, then that's where you get special companies or, or special teams. And you see that in business and, and you see that in sport as well. You know, West Coast competitive advantage was being an elite running team, but the culture was built around players would come back on day one of pre-season and expect to run PBs at, at the beat test, which was the running test du jour of the time. So that everyday culture was, was really aligned to the competitive advantage. And I see that when I interview businesses now and speak to them and you can see your CEO where it's created that, where you can see there's a clear competitive advantage they've got and the culture underneath really feeds into that. And it, it's often those businesses that, that can create something special. Just before we leave the West Coast, you had those two magnificent grand finals that were decided at very narrow margins. I think you guys won by a point in 06 and lost by less than a kick. And the famous Leo Barry Mark, and Leo, as we know, is a fund manager these days. And Doing having, well too, isn't he? He's having a very good career. But totally different environment, but a lot of pressure. I remember watching those games and wondering, you know, who would fumble the ball, who would do something wrong. But most of the time, people were doing things right, including yourself. And I'm just wondering, under that immense pressure with all those eyes on you, performance, has that helped you along the way that you know you can perform in those hothouse environments? I think it probably has. Look, I think I perform well in really high stress environments. 
I don't perform all that well in low-grade constant stress. That sounds like a family. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I, I had a small period of time working, you know, I worked for a VC fund. So I haven't had an extensive career in the real world in an office building, but being chased down by email trail and a million different tasks to do and being bossed around by someone superior, I'd be really unsuited to that. But market crash in, you know, March last year or whatever, you know, really high stressful environment, living down regularly. You know, I remember lying up in bed one day and my, my wife said, oh, how's the US going to open? I said, oh, it looks like it'd be down 5%. And she goes, oh, that's not too bad. It's like, <laughs> what planet are you on? And I remember being up at three in the morning and, you know, crunching sums and doing that. And, and I actually quite enjoyed it. It was wildly stressful. You know, we had an operating business that we weren't sure was going to make it through. There was stuff going on at Carlton, concerns around health and, and everything else. But high stress environments, you know, I think I can tolerate and I think I can be quite suited to. And I, I guess that's a little bit the way I invest. I'm looking for almost VC type returns, like, like big lumpy returns. I'm not looking to get consistent X percent per month each month, I'm looking for maybe putting up with pain for six months, 12 months, and then a, a big lumpy return. So those sort of higher stress undulations is probably more suited to my personality and that the constant grind that some people excel at. From there, you went to Carlton, you came back to Melbourne. It was a different environment, a team getting off, off the lower end of the table, you becoming as a, a leader. And by that stage, it seemed to me that you had a slightly different game. You had to adjust your game. That explosive pace was still there, but not not the same level. That was successful also. You won a Brownlow medal there, as we know. And I'd like to relate that back to investing. I'm a few years on you, and I know as I get older, you've got to change how you approach things because your capabilities change. Do you think there's any truth in that? Yeah, that's true. You've just got to play with what you've got. And yeah, I mean, there's also a heaviness that comes with success, which you see older investors get or older athletes get. They're sort of carrying the weight of expectation that's built up over an extended period. And they often like the freedom to express their views as, as aggressively as they would have in their younger days. You know, you see a, it's a different mindset investors that are looking to protect their wealth than those looking to really create it. than those who feel they have little to lose or less to lose. And I just think that's the way life is. That's a natural, natural progression. You know, people generally become more risk averse as they age for good reason. You don't want to be doing stupid stuff once you've got kids because, you know, the cost of making an error is, is greater. So those sort of things happen in, in your social life and your family life as an investor and, and certainly as an athlete as well. So you've outlined briefly, and we'll get back to it, that the way you invest, that you, you want those big gains and it's got a certain risk associated with it because you're taking a reasonable bet on an outcome, eventual outcome. But given now that you're not the free spirit you probably were when you were back in Perth, when you were young, you've got commitments, family commitments, financial commitments. You can't just cop a loss and move away from it. It impacts. So have you already entered that de-risking phase of your investing or have you pushed on regardless because that's the nature of the creature? I've pushed on because I guess I really want to have a different mindset to an institutional investor. You know, you guys, you have a mandate and mandates are needed because people giving you money need to know what they're getting themselves into. But those rules can turn into a jail after a while. I don't have those rules locked in. I've got more flexibility. I don't have a proper balance sheet, so I can get in and out of opportunities much quicker than any institution. So there's, a, I'm just really conscious of what my potential edge is and utilising that because there's other areas that I've got where I can't compete with institutions. I don't have a research team. I don't have as much experience. I don't have a balance sheet. I feel I'm... I want to be clear on what my potential edge is and, and tolerance to risk and being able to get out of a position once it starts to look like it's going south are some advantages I have over people and businesses looking to allocate much larger amounts of capital. So the tolerance to risk and really charging more risk is still there. Uh, I don't hold, once things looking really ugly, I'm a seller. So I don't hold huge losses unless you've got a huge amount of confidence in the business. But I've also probably got a greater understanding of which companies are going to mean revert, particularly cyclicals and, and resource stocks and, and which companies are a chance to be those truly great exponential stocks that, that don't necessarily have to mean revert. They go through the cycle. Yeah. And what, what about disappointment? Uh, famous pictures of you at the end of your career at Carlton, you did your knee, 
he didn't come back from that, that that was premature in some ways. Obviously, massive disappointment, one, with an injury, and two, a career ending. Does that help you deal with disappointment when an investment doesn't work out? Because <laughs> no, no. <laughs> to get down on an investment is is very easy. You can ride yourself pretty hard. Yeah, and I've been, I've done that before. That part of my football doesn't help with that. But what does help is when you're playing football, no one's ever played the perfect game. You know, your team can play the most brilliant game, but they've still played plenty of mistakes. And even individuals, you know, Dustin Martin could have had the best game of all time. But if you went through the tape, he's made heaps of mistakes throughout that game. It's just the good things he's done have completely outweighed the bad things. And having that mindset has really helped. My investing, because no one else ever sells the top consistently. No one ever buys the bottom every time. Every investor, from me to, to Stanley Druckenmiller, is making mistakes every day. The real mistake is dwelling on something that's already happened instead of just looking towards the, the next opportunity. So that, that's really the mindset I take. I, I'm not trying to be perfect because I, I, I certainly know I'm not. Don't tell Stan that. He mightn't believe you. Well, I mean, maybe he's the exception. <laughs> he's the exception. I don't know. And, and do you ever track your win rate? Because it sounds like you're you're accepting that not everything's going to turn out. I don't care about percentage win rate. I care about total return. So I mean, I haven't done it for a while. Last time I'd done it, my win rate was less than fifty percent, forty six percent. But I'm just not really concerned about that. It's more cutting the losers quickly and and letting the winners run is the main focus. So overall return, you know, I have a lot of positions. I'll often move into a position while I'm still working on it at a small amount before I either buy it properly or, or just sell it. So I really don't fall in love with with positions and, and percentage win rate is, is not a huge concern. Listening to you before, you talk about being a Carlton around the age of 28 and you had a, a mentor or someone from Perth, I think it was, I haven't heard you mention their name, who you formed a relationship and you said that changed the way you invested. You mentioned earlier that you weren't a great investor, you were a you were an investor, but but it, it wasn't anything too meaningful. But at that age of 28, there was a change. I'm just trying to work out, one, whether you'd mentioned who that person is. And two, what what, what did he they- like, He just likes to be referred to as the chairman. I don't know if you like <laughs> He's pretty bright. We just say he's the chairman from WA. But- um, And probably more importantly, what when you say he taught you how to invest, especially at the small end of the market- what are some of the insights that he gave you that gave you the confidence that this is how to go about things? Well, he taught me how to sell, really. That's probably the most important thing. So I, I think property is all about the buying. You know, if you buy a really good property, you don't really need to sell it, you know, until they bring in new taxation laws where they tax uh, uncapitalised gains or something crazy in the future. You can really just buy a property and hold it. But shares, in my view, it's really all about the selling. And, and that was probably the most important thing I learned from him. You know, I was 28. I probably read a couple of Warren Buffett books and read about return on equity and thought because I'd read two Warren Buffett books, I knew, <laughs> I knew everything that there was about investing. You know, just an appreciation. I look at, I guess the investing style I learned from him was really VC investing in liquid markets. So VC investing, they'll do a series A. They'll say, right, I think these are the five important milestones you guys can hit before you raise your series B at a higher value and then we'll come in again. I guess how I learned to invest with this guy was his money in a listed equity. They'll probably need to raise again. Before that happens, here are some five potential milestones that they might hit, which would cause them to re-rate. And because it's a liquid market as opposed to VC investing, it's not binary enough for those milestones or some of those milestones are hit. We can decide to sell and move on to the next adventure or decide that there are five new milestones that are potentially coming up that could get it to re-rate again. And we might double our bet a la how a VC investor would. So, Really understanding that and, and realizing that just because Warren Buffett is, is such a brilliant investor, he doesn't have ownership over the only way to invest. There's heaps of different ways to invest and, and probably just becoming more open to that and understanding how little I knew was a big part of the influence I gained from the chairman from, uh, from the West. That kicked off your enthusiasm for the markets and expanding from that global events. Post football, you did spend a couple of years or just under a couple of years working in venture capital that didn't lead to anything further and, and you ended up leaving there. True venture capital, unlisted startups, difficult? Hard. Yeah, really hard. I was really lucky to get the opportunity and, and there were some really good people I was working with and, and I was grossly unqualified. I was, a, I was an analyst. I was the first point of call who would 
sift through the various opportunities that, that came up. So it's great to get exposure to so many different businesses, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of opportunities, but hard for a number of reasons. It's hard in Australia with such a small population. The binary nature of VC investing is really hard and the valuations, I don't think, compensate you for that. So I was investing my own capital in listed equities at this time quite heavily and, and doing fair bit of work there. And, you know, in a couple of years, I just barely saw anything I wanted to invest my own money in. There were some great ideas and, and some really good founders there, but probably from a valuation side, I almost felt like you were getting punished for the lack of liquidity when to me, you know, liquidity is such a valuable asset. So it wasn't for me VC investing. And I, I really steer clear of illiquid investments now, unless they're spitting out a lot of cash flow. That's sort of the overarching rule. If there's a, something that's illiquid, but it's paying a huge divvy, I think it can make sense for someone like me. Otherwise, I, I really value liquidity. And then you move on, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you started to sit by yourself, manage your own money. As I mentioned the the introduction, that's a lonely pursuit. Really lonely. It is. It really is. And, and it's it's quite the opposite to what you'd experience in a team sport with people watching your every move, especially in, in the AFL. So I'm just kind of working out how, how do you handle that isolation? Do you look around when you have a winner and think, well, where's the crowd cheering? Well, I don't have it now. So I had that for a couple of years and you're right, it can be very lonely. And I don't need a lot of time with other people either, but I'm not a monk, you know. And But it's also and good for ideas as well, isn't it? And good bouncing, for ideas. You need to celebrate the wins. That's right. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I went and shared an office with a property fund manager who's a friend, which was good, but we still weren't sharing any idea flow as of about – 18 months ago or so, I jumped in with another equity fund manager. So I share an office with a guy who's got a, you know, a, a small fund and I've hired an analyst. So I've got a young guy working with me. So there's three of us, but then there's some other crew that share the office that come in and out. We have really good insights into some tech stuff or, or some other market guys. And that's just magic. So you can share ideas, you know, you can lean on each other's work a bit. And also celebrate the wins um, and just talk crap, you know, even just, just from the social side of things, just even, even stuff unrelated to marks, just to be able to go out to lunch with people you like is really important. So that's a great arrangement I've got now. So you constructed your own kind of network and social infrastructure around work, which is great. Now let's go to the unmandated portfolio that, that you construct. I think you've said before that you might have 40 positions. Uh, I'm not sure if they're all listed and some of them will be small how do you go about that and how do you allocate your capital and where, if a, a position's working out, what, what kind of concentration will you have? Will you go up to 10% of your capital into one a lot stock? Not for that. Yeah, I'd go 30% and wouldn't sell just because. I mean, I know a lot of managers have a mandate. If they get to 20%, they're forced to sell or if they get 10%, they're forced to sell. I prefer it not to be that concentrated, but that's that's happened before. And if that happens and I like the company, great. But yeah, 40 positions feels too many, but uh, you know, a lot of them, I sort of lumped the different, say, gold positions as one position. I'm doing some bottom up work on different gold businesses, but the main focus for me is on gold, the asset at a macro level and almost rather than buying an index fund, almost setting up a quasi index fund in gold for that position or ETF for that position. So yeah, so even though they are 40 stocks, a part of me would almost say, well, those four uranium stocks are almost one position, those 10 gold stocks are almost one position and so on. But it would be nice to have a smaller number. But I've, I've tried to cull it before just because there were too many names on the list and I can't. It's, I it's always easy to be a hoarder when it comes to the market. Well, yeah, and I don't like being a collector, but I culled, I culled some last year, like I had rhythm biosciences that I just wasn't doing work on. And it was a small position and I culled it. Within about six weeks, it had 10x. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, and, and the only motivation to sell it was just because I didn't feel I had the time to actually do enough work on it properly. So I've stopped doing that, but I'm not taking The market's a bit different now. Last year, there were so many opportunities opening up. It was sort of a buy now, ask questions later type scenario, but the market's a bit different. You mentioned earlier that you got a margin call back in the GFC. That, mm. ma- that makes two of us. I got mine in the mail, which was three days after that actually tried to sell my stock. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure where the call came from. It was just a letter in the mail. 
Yeah, I got multiple margin calls. And you're right, I'm not sure if they called me either or just sold the stock, but it, it was just that feeling of being chased down by a wave. You know, you'd sell some stuff, then two days later you'd be liquidated some more. And it was a, um, it was just wild. And leverage today on the back of that, if you're talking about lessons, do you take on leverage when it comes to if you're investing in smaller companies that are, no, are volatile? No, no, no. I mean, I'll, every now and then I'll buy instalment warrants, but I'll never take, you know, or I'd be comfortable buying options, but I'd never buy. I, I don't margin mine on stocks. No. And do, do you keep a portion of cash that you put in the portfolio that yeah. is there for opportunities? And, and yeah, how would you course. structure that? Does it wind up and down? Is it sometimes 5% of the overalls or sometimes 25%? Oh, it's more than five. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd like it to be a bit higher than it is now. I mean, I, what would it be? It'd be about 8 to 10% now. I'd like it to be pushing towards 15, but I, there's nothing I want to sell. So, yeah, I'm really, I mean, that was a good learning from, I had some cash leading into COVID. You know what, I did okay because I, I, I would like to be fully invested. So, I had some cash, but I, I think we're all a bit aware of the importance of it post that March, April crash. You touched on before your objectives is to outperform the index and that will ride on, on the ones that win, obviously. But as an individual investor who, who's got their capital on the line, different to a fund manager who's trying to achieve an objective but an index. How would you broadly outline what your objectives are? Is it to grow your capital or is it to make your money, to build you know, enormous wealth? How, how do you think about it? What's the opportunity and how do you go about it? Look, to grow my capital, but I guess it's to spend my time doing things that I find interesting is the main thing. Like I'm not trying to take over the world. I'm not going to be the next Buffett or Druckenmiller or Jeff Wilson, Matthew Kidman, but I want to be able to spend time doing things where I'm learning and, and things that I find interesting. You know, you mentioned football, just a great experience for me. And I, I fulfilled a childhood dream and, and won a premiership and had a, a really lucky career. But you get to the end, of, you know, I mean, even still, wouldn't matter how many premierships you won now, you're still only as happy as your saddest kid. And, and I don't lose sight of that as an investor. Like a lot of guys or, or, or women that have high-powered careers probably get those learnings when they get to 60 or 65 and they start slowing and retiring and they stop working, they go, oh, what was I so worried about? Um, <laughs> it's not that important. You know, I had that as a 30-year-old. So I'm just, I don't have this urge to take over the world. But I do want to make some money and, and be able to have the freedom that money brings. But more importantly, have that freedom to allocate time doing things that I want because I know that when we get to 80, all of us or, or 90 or whenever our health fails, all of, it, all of us will swap whatever capital we have for more time. And so I don't, I don't have that realisation when I'm 90 if I can do it now. Before we get on to the macro, which I know you love to talk about, and we've got to spend some time on that because what I've heard from you is incredibly interesting. One of the things investing's hard is that you're not in control because effectively you're a passive investor. I imagine as a sports person, you're largely in control of your performance whenever you fit. You can work as hard as you like and, and control that to a certain degree. In investing, that's not always the case. You can do a certain amount of work, but it's no, no guarantees. Things can go wrong. A lot of people find that difficult, that things aren't in their control and to be at risk all the time is difficult. How do you feel about that? And is that something you handle quite well, despite your background? I guess I have the elements of a bit related to that, but I find challenging how, you know, particularly because I'm in such high-risk positions, there's never a chance to fully switch off. I can't go away for two weeks and not look at markets. The young guy who works for me as an analyst, he doesn't have access to actually execute trades or things like that. And I don't really want other people to do that. So that's a bit challenging. The idea that you're not in control, I'd almost push back on because I'm in liquid markets. You know, I can sell, I mean, some things that take me a while to sell, but I can sell tomorrow. I can start raising cash. If I chose to be in VC or things I couldn't sell, that was still my decision. Um, I've still decided to back a guy who might be a crook or a, a, a woman who lied to me or whatever it is. So I choose to believe that you are in control as an investor. I mean, I think as an athlete, so often you're not in control. <laughs> you know, you, you don't control who the coach is, who the fitness guy is, who the CEO is, who the football manager is, how many members your club has, how much your football club can spend on its football department. You know, probably as an athlete in a team sport, there's far more things outside of control than an individual investor. Yeah, I, I suppose what you're saying there is that you're in control of your decisions and your decisions lead to an outcome and that's that's on you, it's not on someone else. That's right. And if someone's ripped you off and you gave them money, 
you're not going to learn anything by saying this person stitched me up. It needs to be you made the blue from trusting the wrong That's yeah, part the wrong of your horse. job to make that call. That's right. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Let's go to the macro then, which you look at every day. And of course, the macro has been dominated in recent years, first out of the GFC and then obviously out of the COVID crisis of a money, money printing that we never thought was possible. Yeah. Just some of the repercussions. I know, I know you're, you think it's, it's bound to be inflationary this time around and, and you set in a lot of mining stocks, commodity-based stocks that could take advantage of that. If everyone's doing it, if all the major countries are doing it, why would it be inflationary? Well, I don't think QE or buying bonds is inflationary and it's proven not to be. But I think the end outcome of this much debt needs to be inflation because there's so many deflationary forces at play here. We've got ageing demographics, so much debt, technological innovation. You know, globalisation feels like it's coming to a bit of an end in some sense. That's been a real deflationary force as well. But technology is just hugely deflationary. So you've got this much debt, you've got the huge deflationary impact of technology. If the powers that be don't create inflation, and I choose to believe they can, not necessarily by buying bonds, but by whether it was helicopter money, which they they did during COVID, which has created some short-term inflation, whether they guarantee bank loans that are made and, and we see velocity money pick up, who knows how creative they'll get. But I think the end result needs to be inflation because of how much debt is in the system. What I don't know, you know, it looks like we're going to have a crack at tightening into a, you know, if we're talking about the, the Federal Reserve, it looks like they're going to try and tighten into an environment where some of the leading indicators, bit housing or autos, look like they're slowing down already. So that's interesting. And the bond market hasn't really cracked. It's had a few goes at getting the wobbles, but it still seems to be in that range. Yeah, but I mean, then you ask the question, how much information do you get from the bond market now when the central banks are the ones buying the majority of the bonds? But yeah, so look, I think they'll have a crack at it, but I think that'll be create a deflationary shock and, and then we know what the reaction function is to that. I think sooner or later there needs to be non-transitory inflation to inflate away the debt because I just don't think you can normalise interest rates when they're 130% of GDP like they are in the US. You know, if they get it down to 70%, great, then maybe you can take interest rates to 4%, 5%. But that requires running inflation hot, running GDP hot to get that differential up. Or you can just try and raise rates, but I think you get a, a huge deflationary shock. They tried that in 2008 and even before we hit COVID. Yeah, so I mean, that's why I was surprised they don't just... I mean, I, think, I don't think they're going to get in front of inflation, but inflation's really the only way out unless people think governments around the world are going to default or, or tell people they're not going to get their entitlements or we're going to stop, they're going to stop defending on, on defence and, and healthcare and, and seniors. So It's a conundrum. Yeah, so I guess that's a top-down view. But, I mean, there's, there's lots of other interesting things outside of that. I mean, I think moving away from that petrodollar system that we've had from the early 70s to a world where everything's becoming electrified from currency to cars to, to everything in your home is a really interesting thematic. The Web3 phenomenon, metaverse thematic that Facebook spoke about extensively this week's really interesting. So there's, there's heaps to look at. Let's look at some sectors then. Assuming there is inflation, gold, it's lost some of Sorry for the pun, some of its luster in recent times and been crowded out by the cryptocurrencies. But gold, you seem still reasonably bullish on as a hedge against that inflation? I am, but I, I, th- I think why I like gold is if you get the inverse and you have a huge deflationary bust, you know, if, if the China stuff gets worse and worse and spills over and you do have a proper crash, uh, you get that optionality where I think gold's going to do well if we have a deflationary crash or if we have really high inflation. I know a lot of people are saying it's just been disrupted by, by Bitcoin and it's not needed anymore, and, and maybe that's true. But if you look at who owns all the gold around the world, it's the guys making the rules, isn't it? You know, it's Russia, it's China, it's central banks. And, yeah, I find it hard to believe. I mean, I think the way how you get out of the, the debt, uh, other than boosting GDP and, um, you know, changing that debt-to-GDP ratio, I, I think if you have a, a reserve asset that appreciates enormously, your debt's not as big an issue all of a sudden. Like if you if you have a million bucks in debt- Like Australian house, housing. <laughs> that's right. If you've got a million bucks in debt but your house is worth 10 million bucks, that million bucks debt position is very different to if your house is worth 500 grand. If you look at the amount of gold the Federal Reserve has, you know, if they've got revalued to a level where gold was one-to-one, the gold-dow ratio, which it's been twice before, that really changes their debt profile as a, as a government. Now, 
it's pretty astronomical to think of what a, a Dow gold ratio one to one would be. It's like to the old days. Well, that early eighties, that's what it got to. And back in the great depression, that's what it got to, albeit gold was, was, was a fixed price back then. But you know, you've either got, what's the Dow? 36,000 or 30 something thousand or the Dow halves and you've got up gold at 18,000. So whether it's that, whether it's central banks take a position in, in, in Bitcoin and, and at 10 X's, you know, they've already got 70,000 Bitcoin from Silk Road, be it in America. I think Chinese government have 194,000 Bitcoin, something like that. But having bonds as your reserve asset when the yield is down to zero doesn't feel to me you're going to get that capital appreciation unless people think bond yields can go to negative 30%. So it feels like there needs to be a seismic shift in, in how the system's operating through either the price of gold or a new reserve asset to play its part in, in getting the world out of the, the debt conundrum that it's in. And I've heard you talk about before that you are not afraid of investing in cryptos, cryptocurrencies. What, what's your view there? There's a lot of them. Um, Bitcoin's obviously the flagship of that group, but the, it's it's proliferated in, you know, in, in recent times. What do you think of crypto and do you think it's a good investment? For us old guys, it's difficult because there's not an obvious return except that it might go up. Look, I'm really unqualified to speak about it. I mean, I'm an unemployed board guy. I'm unqualified to speak about shares, but that's a lot more happier hunting ground for me. So I have very small positions, but I think it's really interesting. Look, I think it's important, but I think it's much bigger than just Bitcoin. I mean, I think NFTs or non-fungible tokens and the fact that the user now has digital ownership is as important a phenomenon since the internet. Honestly, I just think it's wildly important. Why is that? Well, you know, people talk about the metaverse a lot. We're going to have every second pitch deck is going to be a new metaverse company for the next two years. We've had Facebook say they're pivoting to become a metaverse company. So the metaverse already exists, but, you know, people have left the real world and some people are spending most of their lives on the metaverse called Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. And those people that are living in that metaverse, they own zero. They don't own their followers. They can't take their followers and move to a different metaverse. They don't even own their name. You know, Facebook lets them have that name for free so that they attract more users to the network. And the only thing user owns in the digital world is is their domain name. That's it. Nothing else. But with NFTs, now you've got the ability to actually create digital ownership for the user. So some of the Web3 platforms that open up, if you don't like the way the platform is operating, you can take a user base to a new platform. It gives so much more power to the user. And the most ridiculous thing at the minute is you've got people like Elizabeth Warren in America looking to crack down on Facebook and the tech incumbents, but also wanting to crack down on cryptos and, and Web3 developers. And you've got this, this time where these tech dictators who've set up, not because they're evil, just because that's the way the system works and they've got shareholders they've got to answer to and they've got to create shareholder value each quarter. They've created these dictatorships where people give them their data for free, then they sell it back to them. They're influencing elections and all sorts of stuff. And you've got a free market option that may be coming to disrupt them that they're looking to kneecap at the same time is just madness. But that idea around digital ownership through NFTs or the, the broader metaverse discussion, I think is just wildly fascinating and incredibly important. And, and how do we get exposure to that? It's largely crypto. And again, I'm just, I'm just not the best person to speak about. And if any crypto bros listen to this, they'll go, <laughs> what is this bald idiot doing talking about this stuff? But I mean, I, what the metaverse means to me, I, I think, you know, there's been a move this week on a lot of the gaming tokens. I think Zuckerberg said that people will get exposed to the metaverse through gaming that's not what it looks like to me. I sort of view the metaverse as you have different countries, much like people might have left Europe whenever they need to move to America where there is more opportunities. People will leave meat space, physical world, and they'll move to a different metaverse and maybe the Bitcoin metaverse, the Ethereum metaverse, the Solana metaverse. Maybe Axie Infinity is a big enough token and community to have its own metaverse. Or the Facebook metaverse, Twitter metaverse, XYZ. So lots of different countries digital nations you can move to. And then within those digital nations, there'll be an ecosystem, there'll be culture, they'll have their own currency, they'll have their own video games where people can play and have fun. They might have concerts, you might be able to get, you know, buy music and you'll be able to move from one metaverse to another. So that that, that feels like it's the race. So you could get it through Facebook, you get exposure to the metaverse, just you've got to work out if that's the one you think is going to win. 
But I think an open system in tech invariably wins. You know, Facebook used to have game developers building on Facebook. Farmville, I think it was, these sorts of, and they all got rug pulled from, from Zuckerberg. The idea that the best developers are going to trust a company like Facebook with the way they've behaved in the past, I think is unlikely. Okay, let's get back to our meta universe, which is the <laughs> share market. Yeah. <laughs> and no one likes to make predictions, but let, let's give you three to five years. What, what's your view on world markets? Do you think that transition, you talked about valuation basis and what backs it and the asset base. If that transition happens, I can't see it being a pretty transition. Do, do I suspect that you are negative on overall markets in that longer time frame? Not necessarily, no, because I'm, you know, I've done a little bit of forex trading, not overly well, but that idea, you know, if, if you've got a position AUD versus USD, you might make money, but it might be because the Aussie dollar's strengthened or it might be because the US dollar's weakened. And you can tell that by how it's behaved versus other currencies, if you like. If you look at the denominator of assets being fiat currency and how much has been printed and what the reaction function is to a crisis, you know, to be really, really anti-asset prices over a longer term, to me, it feels like we'd have to have a deflationary correction and, and, and lose that reaction function, which has become so inbuilt. And I'm not sure that's going to happen. So in nominal terms, yeah, I think, I guess I'm pretty positive. If you were to change the denominator to measure stocks in Bitcoin, well, I think stocks are going to go down. If you were to change it to gold, I think maybe stocks will go down too. But it measured in a currency that's that's currently being debased, and if you look at central bank balance sheet increasing by about 13 to 14% a year post-GFC, in that sort of a world, I can't see the nominal prices of assets dropping significantly because it Which feels is the like- Which is the environment We've been in, yeah, and, and I don't know that that stops. I mean, if it stops, we get a deflationary bust, and who's going to be the central banker that? Not on my watch. Well, that's Vol- what did Volcker have? Volcker had twenty five percent debt to GDP when he raised interest rates to twenty percent in the early eighties. Just a very different environment, you know. Good luck if you had a Volcker today. <laughs> yeah, we've got a power. Just, I know you've been hesitant on giving stock names. Maybe one way we can do that, and something I like to ask all investors, your best win and your best loss in history. Look, my best, I've probably had two or three really big wins in terms of not necessarily size of investment, but the, the percentage, percentage returns. And they're really through resource companies that got lucky or, or were part of a macro thematic change. You know, uranium in 2010 and that sort of initial cobalt run in 2017. I probably wouldn't have held either of them as long now as I did then. So there was a little bit of, I wasn't too stupidly invested by 17. I certainly was in 2010 or whenever uh, the, the, that uranium run happened. Maybe it was 2008. Stupidity helps sometimes, don't it worry. It does. For those big ones, I reckon, I reckon it does. Um, and I try not to talk about wins too much because as soon as you start, you just- <laughs> Okay, we'll get back into your comfort zone. What about a loss? What's your worst loss? Well, I think the worst, I got, I got showed after pay pre-IPO. At a buck fifty, by a guy I really like. He wanted me to have a look at it for him. I did some work on it and just cleverly said, "This is this is stupid. <laughs> this is stupid." It was a new concept. It didn't really make sense to me. I had a view then that, you know, which is a bit of a resource WA view that you know, the definition of a pioneer is someone laying face down with three arrows in his back. That idea that when you try something new, you fail, and it's the second generation of people that, that make a go of it. And that happens with resources a bit. You see a company has a good deposit, they put some money into it, they start to develop it, run out of money, and then the next people that buy it do really well with it. But I would hope that I'm a lot more open to new ideas now because, as I've said, I want to be non-consensus and, and utilise the edge of being able to take more risks than institutional investors. So I hope I've learned from that, but I think I used to be really hesitant at any time there was a business doing something new. Yeah, I hope I've grown from that one. But after paid a dollar fifty, that was um that was a doozy. Bad miss. Yeah. And something I forgot to ask a bit earlier, as an individual investing your own money, you talk about visiting or talking to management of companies. Is that difficult? Because the average investor out there at home rarely does that. So how do you go about that? Do you just ring the company and say, I'd like to spend half an hour talking about your business? Or how how do you go about that as an individual rather than an institution who has that? capability and the response is always pretty positive from the company. Yes, it helps if you're investing with a group of people, if you like, even if the money's not pooled. You know, if I invest with the chairman, I've got a pretty good audience with that company because he'll invariably take a good position and it'll be viewed. I can either go meet the company with him or 
I'm sort of viewed as part of that delegation, if you like. So that helps, but that's only, that's only a couple of positions. Sometimes it will be through brokers. Obviously, any time a company's raising, well, usually they'll do a, a roadshow through brokers, invariably a non-deal roadshow that, that follows up with a deal the next week. Have you ever had a non-deal roadshow that didn't end up in a deal? No. <laughs> as far as I can remember, non-deal roadshows didn't exist till about seven or eight years ago. And now all it really means is code for we'll see you in a week's time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It would have to be one of the more stupid things in markets. But there's other good PR firms, you know, that, that will organise events or, or open up opportunities through them. So I think it's really, if you invest for long enough, you build out a network and whether that's through the IR firms, whether that's through other investors who you can piggyback on or through the brokers, I think that's the best strategy. I would really cold call a company. I have done it and say I want an audience. It's, it's really, and usually through the brokers, even though my balance sheet is immaterial to the company, the house broker usually is, is in a different ballgame because they, they might have 30 investors all invested in that company. So, so usually going through the brokers as a retail investor is not a bad strategy. I think following our conversation, that's the one thing I've underestimated. You've worked pretty hard to get that network to allow you to do what you want to do, whether it be brokers, the other guys sitting with you, public relations people or investor relations people. They can all lead to good ideas, I think. It's Completely. Just, you've just got to keep fishing and using that network and before you know it, there's four or five good ideas in front of you. That's right. And just slowly piecing together who's who in the zoo. You know, there's some brokers who I know are best mates with this fund manager and they did a raise and this fund manager is substantial and you think, Gee, you know, they're pretty close. He wouldn't have punted a bucket load of cash with his best mate if the broker didn't really believe in it. Because obviously every story the broker ever tells you is the best story and you need to invest in it. Sure. But when you can start to piece together more bits of the puzzle and things like that, which aren't necessarily taught in investment books, you start to get a feel for what's happening a bit clearer. All right, Chris, the hour's flowing. I want to say thank you very much. And I want to remind everyone to... Have a look at Chris Judd Invest. As I said, he's got some excellent podcasts, Masters of the Market, where he talks to some very interesting people and talk your book, which is a bit shorter and a bit more punchy about stocks, which we couldn't get too much out of Chris. But anyway, <laughs> he does a better job than me. <laughs> I'm unlicensed, Matthew. I've got to, I've got to keep my opinions, leave my opinions <laughs> to the experts. No, I understand. So I'm, I'm going to wish you all the best. I hope you run on with your financial career and we appreciate your time today and all the best. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Matt. We'll have to get you on the podcast. Look forward to it. Thanks, Matt.